Well, it is my <clears throat> privilege to introduce this first series, which will be on Sunday evenings, which you've heard now repeatedly today, is entitled Bedrock. We are focusing on the foundational truths from which we will proceed in establishing a more uh, focused, deliberate, propositionalized vision and mission. We have always known in, in ways that aren't entirely abstract what we're about as a church, of course, but we are trying to be more deliberate in rethinking that issue. And so on these Sunday evenings, oh, approximately 10 of them interspersed with a few other, um, shall we say, uh, considerations, we will be dealing with these foundational truths. And then, God willing, around April the 21st, we will launch a Sunday morning series which will identify the core values of Heritage Baptist Church derived, of course, from the Word of God. And around that time, I think the first Sunday after Easter, we will present to the congregation our refined vision and mission statement. I want to stress again that to have a vision and mission statement is not something that's just sort of cool uh, because every corporation and every church has a, a vision and a mission statement. The reason why organizations tend to have these is because they give guidance and direction and they help you evaluate the ministries that you may be considering. A natural question would be, would that ministry fit our vision and our mission as derived from the Word of God? So that's why we're doing that, and um, I hope it will be helpful to us in the, in the days to come. I'm convinced that it will be. Tonight, it is my privilege to help us better understand what a three-dimensional church is. Some of you recall that in the so-called friendly dialogue, that idea was introduced. One of the questions reads as follows. So far, all of the proposed changes concern the Constitution. Are there other changes you would like to see in our church that are not related to amending the Constitution? The answer is yes but they too represent no radical shift. They have to do with, our, with helping our church become more biblical by becoming more three-dimensional. And then the question is raised, would you please explain then what it means for our church to be three-dimensional? This was the answer. Very brief. And I want to expand on this tonight. The three dimensions are upward with regard to worship, inward, with regard to mutual care for one another, the body building itself up in love, and outward, with regard to evangelism and missions. 
And then the rest of the answer reads as follows. Reformed Baptists tend to be strong on the upward, but weaker on the inward and outward. I'll just insert this comment. I will be interested to see whether or not, after I have explained and elaborated a little more fully as to what we mean by inward and outward, whether or not you agree with that assessment. So the question will be, if I recall this and ask it tonight, is uh, where do you think we're the strongest? Where do you think we're the weakest? I'm submitting that I think, by the grace and kindness of God, we're the strongest in the upward, which is critical. And that's where we must begin. But I believe we tend to be weaker with regard to the inward and the outward. But I'd like to know what you think, and you can share your perspectives with me when we have opportunity. So that's what I'm privileged to talk about tonight and to help you with. So um, what I would like to do this evening is to illustrate what we mean by upward, inward, and outward, and then ask the question, is this concept of three-dimensional a biblical imperative, or is it just kind of a nice way to think about things? I will reserve my answer to that question for a few moments. So let's first understand what the concept is, and tonight I want to... um, Hopefully use this as an illustration. The first one will be a triangle. And I want us to uh, think of our church as a gospel-centered church. But a gospel-centered church that focuses on three things. Worship, let me just uh, see if I can pull that up there. That would be first and foremost. The second would be community. And the third would be Missions. So there you see the the three dimensions. One of them is upward. One of them is inward, and one of them is outward. Now. We can see this same concept with a different illustration. Let me just um, hurry to that one. I'll save that for a moment and uh, show you a circle illustration, which I think maybe helps us a little better with, excuse me, that's not going to work. Let's think of this as the church. It has an upward um, as well as an inward and an outward.
The upward, of course, has reference to God. And so now, instead of using the word worship, I'm just going to put God up here like him. By the way, Tim Hoke is uh, watching this tonight, and he said it would be the seventh wonder of the world for him. He didn't quite say that, but that was the spirit of that. So, Tim, um, be encouraged. I'm not nearly as tech-savvy as you are and never will be, but I am using an iPad. That's, that's amazing for me. So we have God and we have brother and we have neighbor. I could uh, type those out, but I'm just writing them now in the interest of time. So think, if you will, of members of the church who are to be ministered to by the church. That's why the arrow comes back in. But there's a world perishing out there that desperately needs the gospel. And they are outside of our door and on the far sides of this earth. And so a three-dimensional church is not only upward in its worship and inward with regard to community and outward with regard to mission. The upward focuses on God. The inward focuses on the brothers and the sisters. And the outward focuses on our neighbor. So let me just uh, give you um, a better picture of these things. I think uh, I may have one that might. Let's go back, first of all, to the to the triangle. This one's a little jazzed up because I've written more in it. This is what our identity is. And if you go down to the bottom, this is a possible definition. I think it's very biblical. A biblical church is a gospel-centered worship community on mission. In that order, gospel-centered Worship, up we go. And then notice the arrow down from worship to community. It's a worship community. We, we can't just come on the Lord's Day and sing and pray and once a month observe the Lord's Supper, Supper and be a biblical church. Doing those activities does not a community make. A community is a group of people who fall increasingly in love with one another and develop stronger and stronger relationships, enabling them to minister in each other's lives, or to use the language that I've already quoted from the friendly dialogue coming out of Ephesians chapter 4, the body building itself up in love. The body building itself up. In other words, we're saying, and this isn't novel and this isn't new to you, but I'm just emphasizing this, it isn't adequate for you all to experience sanctification and Christian maturity just by what we do behind this pulpit. This is critical. This is central. This is primary. But pastors and teachers given for the equipping of the saints, which I'm trying to do now, 
unto the work of ministry. The body is to build itself up in love. It presupposes community. And I'm just saying to you that our conviction is that as pastors, we haven't adequately, adequately created structures for the development of community, the kind of community that really results in opening our hearts to one another and seeking help from one another and edifying one another, encouraging one another. We do pretty good at it, but we need to, we need to do better at that. And that worship community, which is gospel-centered, can't just be a community that worships. They have to be a community that cares about the whole world worshiping. And Piper would suggest to us that if, in fact, we have been made worshipers by the grace of God, the delight and the sheer privilege and the joy of being made worshipers of God fills our souls with a longing to make other worshipers of God. So worship is not, as Piper is famous for saying, merely the goal of missions. It is the fuel of missions. So as a church, it isn't adequate for us just to be gospel-centered. We have to be a gospel-centered worship community that goes on mission. So that's what we have in mind when we speak of a um, three-dimensional church. Let me just come back to the circle illustration for a second, which I... uh, prepared a little bit earlier, and hopefully it will be helpful. Upward to God, inward to brother, outward to neighbor. Okay? There's the concept. So once again, looking at the... This is our identity. This is who we are as a church. We are a gospel-centered worship community on mission. We are three-dimensional, upward to God, inward to our brothers and sisters, and outward. And the reason I drew that circle in orange with arrows is just to say this is what we continue to do. We worship. We grow in our love for one another. We go on mission to make more worshipers who themselves come together in communities. And by the way, this, this worship community is a church, okay? We're not talking about a parachurch organization, but I'm not going into all the ecclesiology of this concept. These worship communities have elders, they have deacons, they observe the ordinances, they have a procedure for church membership, they exercise church discipline if necessary. I'm not doing an ecclesiology right now. I'm just helping us understand the concept of three-dimensional, okay? So I think I'm just going to leave that for right now and um, go back to nothing. I assume that I can do that by... uh, Let's see here. There we go. Now, it's time to be biblical, okay? Because this is just a concept. But just, does it sound... Don't answer. I'm not looking for a physical uh, affirmation. I'm asking you to think in your mind. Does what I just set before you sound biblical. Now I raise again the question that I said I was going to raise. Do we really have an imperative, a command to be a three-dimensional church? 
Or is it just a nice thing to, to possibly be? Well, the answer is, um, we have an imperative to be a three-dimensional church if, in fact, the Bible gives us an imperative to be three-dimensional. And I submit to you that it clearly does. Now, where would we turn to demonstrate the uh, three-dimensional imperative? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. And notice with me verses 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 34. Now, while you're turning, I'm going to remind you of the Great Commission without us actually turning to it right now. You know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Which of the three dimensions is that? Obviously, that's the outward. The church is to get outside of itself and seek to make more worshipers by seeking to make disciples of all the nations. Then, Jesus says, as you remember, these words are so familiar, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. The teaching implies that they're going to gather together in some kind of a gospel-centered community where they can be taught and further discipled. That would be the upward, clearly. So in the Great Commission itself, two of these dimensions are very clearly found, aren't they? The outward and, in a sense, the upward. But I'm not turning to Matthew 28. I've had you turn to Matthew 22. So would you notice with me verses 34 through 40? But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, we were reminded this morning in our class on parables that when the Bible uses the word lawyer, it's not referring to what Cliff Boswell and Tim Klein do. It's referring to professional students of the Old Testament scripture, scribes who studied the law of God. They were experts in the um, civil or judicial, ceremonial, and moral law of God. So you can think of a Pharisee who has given himself over to understanding Old Testament law. One of these men asked him a question to test him. You can see the motive was not pure, really to trap him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He hoped to put our Savior on the horns of a dilemma. And Jesus very simply and quickly answered, Well, if you want me to prioritize the moral law of God, I can prioritize it and summarize it for you. This would be priority number one, and this will be a summary of commandments one through four. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
What dimension does that sound like? If someone wants to, you can give that one out loud. Upward? Okay. Clearly upward. Of course, it starts in the soul. But if we do love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we want to worship Him. We want to hear from Him. We want to obey Him. We want to live for Him. We want to come into His presence. We want Him to bless us. But then Jesus goes on and and gives the lawyer more than he asked for. He said, I'll, I'll tell you what the second commandment is in terms of priority, and I'll summarize that. And it is this, verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jonathan made reference to the law and the prophets this morning particularly to the prophets. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments with two. Understand that the Ten Commandments are a summary of all moral law in terms of the broad categories. The ten can be summarized in two, and the two can actually be summarized in one if you use the word love. Love toward God and love toward neighbor, and the New Testament does that as well. It, it, it reduces it to one commandment, with two different objects, and that is the commandment to love. So now, when you come to the second commandment, it is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Is that the upward? No. Now listen carefully. Sort of a trick question. Is that the inward, or is that the outward? Don't answer too quickly. Because the real answer, it is both. Your nearest neighbor is your brother or sister in Christ with whom you are in community. And it's not wrong for us to categorize in these kinds of ways that uh, we're, we're supposed to have a very special love for one another. You remember what the Apostle Paul said? He says this in Galatians 6 verse 10. Do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. So who are you to love? Your nearest neighbor, namely your brother and your sister in the faith, or your neighbor in India or wherever else in Owensboro? The answer is both. So when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, it's legitimate for us to speak of our nearest neighbor as being our brother and our most distant neighbor as being those outside of God's saving grace who desperately need to be converted and hear the gospel and made worshipers. Those people who belong to those nations that we are seek to that we are to seek to make disciples from. So this is a very critical text. This text right here requires us, it is a biblical mandate, it is an imperative for the church. The church can't exempt itself from this, this summary of God's moral law, which is to love God and to love our neighbor, both our nearest neighbor and our most distant neighbor. This is biblical. This is a command. 
Now, let me show you the outworking of this by the blessing of God in the church at Jerusalem. So, this is our second text tonight, and this is the last one I'm going to um, direct us to this evening just by way of this introduction. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And let's notice this church that is so blessed of God. Acts chapter 2. How do you like that line up there? I'm going to leave that there for a minute. In Acts chapter 2, we read these words, starting with verse 42. And they, that would be the people who were baptized on the day of Pentecost, 3,000, new believers, newly born church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, if you're prone to write in your Bible at all, this is a safe one. This one you can put in ink. I usually write in pencil, but you can put this one in ink. There's a definite article before the word fellowship because it really has to do with the Lord's Supper communion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, that the, the most intimate form of communion, of fellowship, And they devoted themselves to, and the definite article is provided in our English translations, the breaking of bread. It isn't just getting together to have a meal. This is the sacred meal. That's the same koinonia, the same fellowship that he was speaking of with regard to the Lord's Supper. And the prayers. So you really should put the word the in front of the word fellowship. So here's a group of Christians. They, they have devoted themselves to being taught by the apostles in meeting together around the Lord's Supper to declare their oneness with each other and their dependence upon him in his life and death. And they devoted themselves to the prayers, not just prayers, the prayers. These were the corporate prayers of the church in Jerusalem. It doesn't say they devoted themselves to prayer. Then we would just say, well, this was probably a praying people. Probably everybody prayed earnestly in their homes. They probably did. But these are the prayers. So when you, when you put those three things together, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, the apostles' teaching, what do you have? You have a church that is engaged in the upward This is hearing from God. This is communing with God. This is praying to God. This is seeking the face of God. This is doing church. This is the upward. And we see the upward again, actually, in the beginning of, I think it is, of verse 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple, they were were going to corporate worship services. Of course, eventually, they didn't go to the temple they began to meet in homes in smaller churches. But there's a corporate sense of worship. It's the upward in the first part of verse 46. But now go back to 
verse 44. I'm skipping verse 43 because uh, there were uh, many wonders and signs. And, and here's what sometimes troubles me about this, is that, that verse I don't think we can see as the normative, but out of fear for that being views, viewed as the normative, a lot of people are afraid to just look at this passage as a whole and say, yes, these things should characterize the local church. And I think that's a phobia. I would be the first to acknowledge that this is, a, this is not a didactic passage in terms of command or imperative. It's an indicative. It's a narrative. So should we just say, well, that just tells us what they were like. We don't have to be like that. We shouldn't be worried about that. It's just, an, it's just a narrative. Well, I'm worried about us not being as blessed by the Holy Spirit as we can possibly be. And so are my fellow pastors, and I suspect you are. We want to be a church that is devoted to apostolic instruction. This morning, we heard from the Apostle Peter. He spoke to us. And in speaking to us, he helped us understand that he spoke to us as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote precisely what God wanted him to write. But this morning, we sat under apostolic instruction, even though it came through one of our pastors. We want to be a church that is devoted to that unique fellowship of the Lord's table and the breaking of bread together and confessing our oneness with each other in Christ. We want to be devoted to prayer. That's one of the emphases that we're trying to lay down more and more and more. We want this church to become increasingly a praying church. But that isn't all. This church, according to verse 44, was an inward church, not just outward. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What's going on there? Well, there was, a, there was probably a famine going on and there was extreme poverty in Jerusalem. But what's really going on is the love of the brethren. That's what's going on. People loving each other so much and loving the world so little that they were willing to sell what they didn't need in order to help their brother or their sister just make it. It's an inward. It's an inward dimension of the church. And it's described further in verse 46 when it says that after they're attending the temple, together, day by day, together... They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's one reason why we think it's good for care groups occasionally to have meals together. God has given us this as a wonderful blessing and a wonderful way to enjoy one another's company. In every culture, people enjoy eating together. Were these people just interested in going to the temple and doing their upward 
They were just a gospel-centered worship community. No, they were a gospel-centered worship community. They loved one another. They cared for one another. They ministered to one another. They spent time with one another and probably developed the kinds of relationships that were essential to do what we commonly call the one another's. There are all the one another's of the New Testament, 27 at least. And I've said before, you can't do most of them out in the lobby or in the parking lot. Most of them require the cultivation of a depth of love and relationship that that we want to see developed in our church. So there's the inward. Now notice verse um, 47, because the end of verse 46 speaks about their generous hearts. We already saw something of their willingness to minister to each other by selling possessions and belongings. But it says in verse 47, praising God, I don't know if that's private or corporate, I'm sure it's both probably, but it says praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, who are all the people? Well, the the people there are not the members of the church of Jerusalem. They're their neighbors. They're their friends. They're the people in the community. They were the people who were talking about the church. And their, their outworking of Christianity was so attractive that even the world looked at them and said, man, I wish we had that. What These guys really love each other. That's what we want, isn't it? All of us want to live such Christian lives, not only individually, corporately, that the world looks at us and says, they seem crazy in many regards, but I sure would like to be like them. I'd like to belong to that kind of a community. God made us communal beings. You've heard us say this recently. I've been saying this. The Trinity is a, is a communal God. The three persons of the Trinity always existed, enjoyed each other, delighted in each other. Long before there was such a thing called time or space, they, they had an intimate social life. But when God exercised his decree to create. He created man in his image, and as image bearers of God, we are social beings, and people who fall out of that norm we call antisocial. An antisocial person, in some regards, is not a normal person. Isn't that true? We say, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of strange. He's, he's sort of antisocial. He doesn't seem to like to be around people. That's the exception. God made us social beings, and so the whole world is craving for community, and they join everything under the sun to find community, but the one institution that God ordained to fulfill our deepest communal needs is the church. And so a healthy church lives out its gospel-centered community life in such a way that the world sees it and looks upon it with favor and is attracted to it and God uses it in evangelism and as a result of it, he adds to the church the ones who are being saved because of the church. That's the outward dimension. So I submit to you that in this narrative, we have all three dimensions. We have the upward, the inward, and the outward, and that's what a three-dimensional church is about. So now the question is, and I must quit. What do you think? What is our strongest suit? What is our weakest suit? 
I think we need to get stronger in our strongest suit. Our strongest suit is the upward and the worship of God. In no way do we want to minimize that. That's priority. But we do believe that we need to grow in a deeper communal love for one another, which eventually manifests itself in a deep and profound love for the lost world, starting with our own city and our own county and reaching the far ends of the earth. So what is a biblical church in terms of being three-dimensional? This is what it is. It is, let's just notice it once more. I think it's uh, written in one of these. It is a gospel-centered worship community on mission. I submit to you that we need to grow, especially in the inward and the outward, without losing anything of the upward. In fact, to continue to strive for more of the upward. So that's just sort of uh, what we are, who we are. That's why the word, the words, our identity at the top. That's what God has made the church to be. But we just need to be more and more of what He's called us to be for our own good and for the sake of the world. So let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for the commands you've given in Scripture. Thank you for telling us that we are to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, dear Lord, to to love our immediate neighbor in terms of our brother and sister in Christ and to love our distant neighbor who may live next door or on the other side of the world. Lord, may we be like the church in Jerusalem. We want to be a people who are upward in their devotion to you, inward in their devotion to one another, and outward in their devotion to the lost. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll dismiss the uh, children to their meeting at this time. Let's stand, please, and sing.